Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for November 2013 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month is Dr. Harry Witchell, who spoke to us on how body language can save the world. We hope you enjoy. I hope you'll understand that because it's, um, because it's a talk without a, uh, any screen, I think the only way forward is for us to do a bit of demonstrations. So uh, I hope that there will be time for us to interact, and we'll see if that works out. Oh, when we talk about body language saving the world, where kind of we might want to start, so you all know that body language sort of has been done since before Darwin, so actors have been working on this for centuries, and not only that, but they, people, so you get to Darwin, and he started looking at all of the facial expressions, but in the 1960s, it came into its own as some sort of special way of understanding people or even women which would be really, truly extraordinary. But it's become more... Body language has undergone a revolution, which really came to fruition about 2010 when the MOD asked for people to start uh, analyzing surveillance, uh, surveillance films to try and figure out whether or not you could recognize terrorist activity just from films on streets. So one of the things we'll be talking about is how you recognize what is unusual in people and what people are actually doing. So with that in mind, I think I'll start with something really obvious about body language, which is um, this. So within, within body language, there's this idea that you can recognize when people are open or closed and that crossing arms is some terrible body language. Uh, I, I've had interviews with people at the BBC where very standoffish people would have their arms closed and say they have bad body language. First of all, there is no such thing as bad body language. There's only body language that's appropriate for your situation. We talked about how body language, particularly arm crossing, seems to be bad or a sign of weakness or defensiveness or being closed, but that's not really true. If you show a a slightly different pose, do you recognize that, that pose? Yes, it's a quite powerful. Do you know where you see that? It is exactly like a bouncer. Yes, that's right, Sam. So it's, a, it's what bouncers do. So, in fact, body language, crossing your arms isn't necessarily just something that uh, suggests your clothes. Bouncers, of course, are always standing next to pretty women and are talking to them, as you know. It's actually a territorial pose. So the, those of you who are interested, I've written an entire book on music and territory. So territoriality is, is a body language idea where you show ownership, possession, or relationship. And this is a a key issue with things. So if you watch people's relationships um, with how they deal with objects, places, or even other people, you will understand territoriality. So it turns out that the way people handle a, a boy, a bag, and a bedroom are all the same thing. The people can grab onto and use their bodies to demonstrate where they are and what they think they own. Now, we've, if you imagine it a library, not that you could imagine in Oxford not a library, but if you imagine a library, sometimes you'll see people spread their books around in front of them. That's territory. That's, gra- that's using the physical space around you to suggest that this is your territory. And if you actually... People have done experiments where you put a jacket on a chair and then just leave and wait and see how long it is before people either 
sit next to that jacket or even use that chair. And it can be hours, depending on what, what kind of library. So there's quite, a lot of, there's quite a lot of territoriality that can be expressed with what you do with your body. Now, when we talk about how people uh, are aggressive, so there, there's a, an idea that th- it was first described in the 1950s by Edward Hall, um, an idea called proxemics. Uh, when you use your body, and this varies highly from culture to culture, when you use your body, part of what you're doing is expressing your territory around you and how, how accepted people are and where is your space. So, for example, if I get particularly close to someone, it becomes a very different experience <laughs> than if I'm actually further away. Now, if you think about how... So if, you, if we describe proxemics, there's, say, four or five different levels. So by and large, I'm now talking to all of you now from a public, experience, public level. So that's about two meters away. Now, if I'm talking from about this far with you, then that's more of a social description. And people, just by standing here, we have a slightly different relationship. Obviously, there are lots of people next to us. So it doesn't feel quite so social. But this is much more of a friend-like position. And if I get closer, as I had done a moment ago, rather than frightening you, that's considered a, a more intimate position. Now, when I say intimate, we're talking about how people can engage. Now, with body language, when you get really close to somebody, you are, end up touching them. And that kind of intimacy I call the two Fs. You know, when you get really close to someone, it's either a punch or a kiss. So, so it's either fighting or something else. Now, that, that's why people get really close to one another. Now, if we're, going to, um, if we're going to talk about how proxemics works, I think really what we need to do... Ah, yes. Perhaps some demonstrations would be appropriate. I know that there's very little space here, so we'll, we'll see if we can do this. So if I, I can have a volunteer, say, Sam, can I have a volunteer? For, you're all going to do this in a second, so you might as well get used to the idea. So if you stand up... So what I'd like you to do with each other is to just practice some proxemics and just to see what the other person gets up to. So just pick a partner and walk very slowly but consistently toward them and see <laughs> how they respond to that and also how, how, how you feel about that. So why don't you just pick a partner and see how close you can get and what, what ends up happening. Take, a, take about uh, a minute to do that. So one of the things you might have noticed in that is that there, that some people. So when I, I did that just a moment ago with Pedros, it, it was it was really clear, but you have to watch very carefully. When we got very close, there was a, a slight leaning back of Pedros, about like that. And I'll just warn you in advance: all of my research is about these tiny little leans where people do this to get away from things, and do that to get closer to things. But these are very revealing, as we'll talk about when we talk about dating and that sort of thing. Now, having done that, we're going to do the same experiment, but with a small wrinkle. So if I, I could have Sam again. So what I'd like you to do, so if you could just stand facing the, everyone. So what we're going to do is the same thing, but you're going to do that by just moving closer and closer side to side. So would you go ahead and have a go with that? Yeah, side to side. Same thing, but side to side. The, the first... The first thing you would have noticed now is that you will have almost all invariably have touched one another. And there's, 
did, you, did any of you, how many people felt on the first exercise quite a bit of stress and a little bit of worry? Did anyone accidentally giggle uh, nervously? So the, on the, when you went side to side, did you feel anything at all? No, not usually. So when, when you're talking to people, so this is a, a thing that men often do because men are, men are nominally more potentially aggressive and more aggressive. So when men are talking to one another, they're much more likely to talk like this um, from this angle rather than straight ahead whereas, because there's something wrong with that. Um, whereas w- if you watch women talking to one another, often they'll go face to face, they'll get right up to one another and talk. They, women won't talk to men like that, except under very rare, under specific circumstances. But these differences uh, in proxemics uh, suggest that it's not just a space or an angle. So if you look at the, the way that body language research was being run in the 1950s, the, there was an understanding that it, you walked around with this zone of personal territory, like you were some sort of spaceman or something. You, you, you had this like spacesuit around you. But as you can see, that plainly isn't the case. It, I'd say it's much more like an egg shape. That is, that behind you, there's almost you can have almost no personal territory behind you, and yet right up in, uh, close to your face, that has a profound effect. You know, that, that's, there's a kind of a, a weird intrusion to that. Uh, that's quite interesting. Now, now we're on to the topic of aggression and power. Uh, when you look at how people use power, a lot of times people are trying to, quote, psych, psych one another out. So if, if you're looking at how businessmen often do their negotiations, there will often be lots of little jokes, one-upsmanships, very small tenuous pieces of activity that are all meant to make the other person feel beta, if you like, to establish who's alpha, which goes beyond simply the negotiation about um, who is in a better position and who has more to offer, and it's just about who is a more powerful person. These kinds of... Does that make any sense? Yeah, if you watch people where you have winner-take-all, so there are two kinds of negotiation broadly. There's win-lose negotiation and winner-take-all negotiation. Sorry, win, winner-take-all negotiation and win-win negotiation. In win-win negotiation, people aren't trying to get the better of another person. They're just trying to maximize their outcomes. But in winner-take-all, often the goal is to simply psych out the other person to get more than what you might otherwise expect. Oh, having spoken... So we've now covered... This is the beginning of leadership, so what, what does body language say to us about leadership? So plainly, it's really important to have good body language to lead. And we now have, in Britain, as well as now in America, uh, as has always been the case or for many years, in Britain we now have American-style leadership. That is, uh, candidates must be televisual. One of the things I was asked to do by the BBC was to watch the, um, the debates the, the, the presidential-style debates between the three candidates in 2010. And one of the things you could see is that David Cameron really upped his game, that, that over the course of it, it was really important, ever since Tony Blair, essentially, that body language was used successfully. And if you watch Tony Blair's body language, it is... I mean, it, many Britons are, are really put off by Tony Blair because it's so slick. It's very. He, he has a kind of a, an almost perfect body language. Although really, his body language isn't nearly as perfect as Barack Obama's, which is truly amazing. Now, if you notice that there are very different styles 
of body language. And we're talking about leadership. When people often say, this is how you do, do leadership, I, I would take issue because there are really two very different ways of going about leadership so that you know in your own lives how you want to do things. One style is a, a, what I would call a kind of removed leadership. That is a, a leader who is almost untouchable, and that will often be expressed by slow movement. Often you'll see people with shoulders down, and they will not move anything except the neck up. And that kind of body language, that, that kind of removed leadership is a kind of uh, sophisticated and powerful leadership. And that, that's what Barack Obama is about. Whereas if, if you look at, say, someone like Putin, he has the exact opposite style of leadership. If you watch his body language, it is the body language of leadership, but it's the leadership of a jungle cat. That is, he, he walks around, he swaggers, he has obvious power, he's unafraid of any sort of uh, attack and what he'll do instead is he will dominate a situation by being forceful whereas Obama as you can imagine won't do anything like that he acts powerful as though he is untouchable the implication I I would call that a kind of sophisticated leadership the implication is I'm so powerful and so calm I don't need to do anything because it's all going to work my way anyway you you with me on that so that's the kind of issue with body language that I think is quite important for leadership now one of the, the main issues that a leader has to communicate is trust. Now, trust is a, is a fascinating topic um, because in the workplace, part of what determines whether or not you're going to get promoted is whether people trust, trust you. The other is territoriality, whether you belong in the group. Those are the two real things that people are making decisions about. Oh, if we're talking about trust... Um, one of the the key issues is whether people feel that they can believe in you. And so there are two issues, really. It's competence and loyalty. Does Does that make sense? And loyalty is a much more engaged position, whereas competence is a much more authoritative position. So when we talked about Obama before, he's obviously a very authoritative figure, whereas Putin, you wouldn't actually view, you couldn't really call Putin authoritative. He's just he, he is instead engaged. He's able to get what he wants by physically moving and pushing things around. There's a, there are a variety of ways of expressing this, and I thought we might have a little go with that, if that's all right with you guys. So what I thought we'd do in the first instance is I'm going to teach you a conversation. You, you don't have to use this conversation during the exercise, but sometimes I've found that this exercise doesn't work because people don't know what to say. So I'm going to give you something to say so that you know the conversation. And then you can, I'm in a moment, I'm going to ask you to have a conversation. And this is a conversation you can have if you've run out of things to say. And the first statement is, the first, and I want you to repeat after me. I just want to be sure that you know this. The first statement, statement number one, is, I love broccoli. Can you say that? Great. That, that, that's perfect. Now the, the second statement to this, so it's a three-line conversation. The second statement from that is, well, I really don't like broccoli. So where we are now is, I like broccoli. And then the other person responds, well, I really don't like broccoli. And then the third comment is the response to that, which is, that's wrong. You should really like broccoli. It's good for you. That's wrong. You 
okay, now we know the three sentences. Now I'm going to have that conversation with Sam, okay? <laughs> and uh, I'm going to show you, though, three different kinds. So we're going to do it with gesticulation. And I'm going to tell you a little something about how gestures work. Uh, broadly speaking, there are, there are four different places where you can make gestures from. Um, so and it, it does have a profound effect upon where your arms are coming from in terms of what people do. So one kind of way of gesturing is uh, from the heart. So that would be actually thoracic. So your gestures would run from about here to there. Yeah? And I'll, I'll show you. So it would be something like, I like broccoli. There's a kind of passion in there. There's kind of an inspiration. Uh, you can also make abdominal gestures, which would run from about here to the, the waist. You say, I like broccoli. And that has a different feeling. Instead of being passionate or being inspired, I like broccoli is much more of a matter of fact. It's kind of what you, it's believable. There's a kind of trustworthy and naturalness to it. Yeah, are you with me on that? Now, a third position would be from above the neck. That is the head. So you can do, I like broccoli. <laughs> uh, that, that kind of, these kinds of facial or head, head, head gestures, there's a kind of a, a fear and, a, and an anxiety about it. Well, it's more than just fear and anxiety. It's a kind of crazedness about it, yeah? I like broccoli. <laughs> you don't have to change your voice. Uh, the, the fourth position is what's called, the fourth position is uh, below the waist which is a very wrong way of doing it. So, it's, 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 so you'll, you'll, you'll see many people make gestures like this. I, I better take this out of my pocket for a second. So you'll often see uh, people make gestures. Uh, they'll be uh, standing on stage, and they'll do this with their change in the pocket. You can see that. These, these are below-the-waist gestures. They're unconscious, and you know, they're not, uh, they're, that one often implies a kind of um, it's an impatience or, or, or an anxiety. But if, if we do it with... You know, I like body. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's something about that that just says that you're socially unaware. Uh, with that in mind, you've now, can we, can we repeat our three sentences now? Which is, one is, I like broccoli. Number two is, I like And number three is, Fantastic. Now you're in a position to find a partner and have a conversation, have a broccoli conversation or any conversation you like, but use all four, try different versions of it with head, thoracic, abdominal, and uh, below the belt gestures. Try, see what you get out of it. Go ahead. So, guys, uh, so, uh, did, did you, did you, did you guys find that there was a, did you see a difference? Did you feel a difference? More to the point. Did you feel a difference in yourself? And did you f feel a difference in how you responded to other people when they were doing particularly the, the head one? But I think, for me, what's most interesting is this difference between thoracic and abdominal gestures. Obviously, we, I mean, we say, oh, well, the head one and the below the belt, that's wrong. There isn't anything that's really wrong. It just it gives a different impression. But the, watch what people do with thoracic and abdominal ones, and you'll see that it gives it a very different feel. Now, I should warn you about television, which is a very particular medium. So television, there are a variety of exceptions to all that I've just told you. So in television, obviously, people are usually boxed in in quite a... What that means is, is that everybody, everybody who's been taught to deal with television, they'll... Um, they'll make all their gestures not even, it'll be almost neck height, the gestures. And that, that's a learned thing from television. 
So, so be aware that it may look passionate, but in fact, they're just trying to get their gestures on the screen. <laughs> uh, speaking of get, getting gestures on the screen, um, y- you'll see two really interesting political gestures in Britain, just things you might notice. Um, one of them is something that was Tony Blair really made his own, which is so batoning. So when people talk, you'll... Some, so there's this idea that all gestures mean something, but that, that isn't really the case. Well, as, as we talked about right at the very beginning with the arm folding, each gesture is different. It has to be determined in context with everything else the person's body is doing. Oh, if you watch, when you watch people gesturing with speech, often batoning is when people are, they're not just stressing what they're saying, but they're stressing the verbal stresses, so they'll be doing something along this line. Yeah, that, that's called batoning. And where people baton and how people baton is often taken to have meaning or an implication. So, for example, uh, it's, this is considered really quite aggressive. And in fact, it's, there's a rule, if I'm not mistaken, in the houses, House of Commons that you can't even do that. You're not supposed to point. And so what they often do now, one thing that politicians have been taught to do, which is very it's peculiar, it's only for television, is they start making gestures like this, and they start pointing with this, what I'd call a, th- a thumb and finger purse position, this one here. No normal person does that. <laughs> okay? people, people don't do that. There's no reason to do that. But you'll see politicians do it all the time, and that, that means they've been schooled. Someone has, has, has been knocking the edges off of them. Now, the other one that, that's really important from Tony Blair is batoning with the whole arm. So often when people baton, so they'll have this kind of action. But if you, if you watch Tony Blair, he, does, he hugs people. He this. That's also not normal. Okay. <laughs> Nobody does that like that, except if they're a politician, and then they've been trained to do all that. So you'll you'll see that on telly all the time. But if you watch your friends, nobody moves their hands like that. It just it just doesn't happen. So we're talking about trust, and before we move on to engagement, I, I, I thought we might uh, talk a little bit about arrogance. And so I, I'm, I'll just show you uh, another pose that, that's quite useful if you want to offend people, um, which is this one. <laughs> Do, 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 you, do you recognize that? Do you know what that means? Yeah. Well, almost, yes. It, 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 that's a following from that, yes? It, what, you? Sorry? Not as such. People often do that when there's one seated, actually. They, they, they'll often do that when seated. They're not impressed. Yes, what is that? Yes, it is not impressed. It's, it's intellectual arrogance. It, it means... I'm so much smarter than you. I'm so much smarter. And it, it's called the New York lawyer pose because New York lawyers naturally assume that pose. And the degree of smartness is directly proportional to how far you lean back in your chair. So, so if you have two New York lawyers in a room battling with one another, you'll see them go battle to battle. They'll, they'll move back further and further to see who is more important. I'm so much smarter than you. No, I'm smarter. No, I'm smarter than you. Of course, this is all of those are chess displays, so that's kind of a sophisticated move. What it means is I'm so unafraid of this situation that you can attack my... I mean, this is the, the just-so story of where it is. I'm so unafraid that I'll present my chess to you. And not surprisingly, you'll, of, you'll often hear that women don't make that pose, so it's often viewed as male arrogance. You know? That's often what, it, what that pose, the head behind the hands, it's a, hands behind the head is often, ta- often taken as. But in fact... If you meet women who are adequately powerful, 
even though it is a chess display and women are not supposed to do that, really powerful women do do that. And they do it naturally. I don't know how they come up with the idea that it's all right, but they, they, it's socially acceptable. And I'd like to move on a bit to a, more of my research, which is about engagement. So, so we talked about how I'm obsessed with tiny movements that are seemingly unimportant. That is, if you have two people talking, if they're getting more engaged, nominally they're supposed to get closer and closer. I actually look at human-computer interaction where I'll look at a, have a person looking at a screen like this, and you know, you could make some sort of argument along the lines of engaged, not engaged. You know, th- those kinds of tiny movements. And we, we do very careful mathematical analyses of precise positions of, of their head and how it moves back and forward and that sort of thing. But it's not really that simple. Oh, it is true that as humans move closer and closer to one another, it usually does mean that there's more engagement. And further away does mean less engagement. But with a computer screen, it's a little bit different because you never kiss your computer screen. It doesn't matter how much you love the person that you see there. It just doesn't happen that way. What this means is that the research on issues of how close people are becomes quite complicated in terms of gestures. So a lot of the issues are, if, if we're talking about, let's say that I was trying to train my computer to recognize engagement and I gave the computer a rule along the lines of close means engaged, further away means disengaged. Now, part of that is true. If you really want to see somebody who, who is really disengaged doing human-computer interaction, you'll see this. So now, now by this point, right, they're really disengaged. Yeah? But moving forward is not the same. So the closest that people go when they're really engaged with something, so if you imagine... so. Watching a computer game, you'll be about this. So you'll just off the chair. So you can actually make measurements. If you have a, an array of pressure sensors in the back of the chair and the bottom of the chair, you can detect whether or not people are putting all their weight on the seat or any weight is being used on the back. So for instance, we have, and there, are, there are researchers. I don't, I don't use those pressure sensors. I use film. But you, you can actually, if you look like this, a lot of weight is actually going on the back of the chair, and the seat weight is all at the front. If we're talking about teaching a computer, though, whether or not leaning forward is interesting, what happens when you get this? You can see the problem that arises in the research right away is that that actually the, the biggest board system, the biggest evidence of boredom, is actually moving forward and trying... This is what I would call forced, forced attendance. That is somebody who's watching but would rather not. Now, that's not to say that you can't lean forward when watching a screen. You, you can have a sporting event. You know, people are really excited by that. But there's some sort of complication here with this, these engagement measures. And uh, I'll give you another example. So this is leaning forward and leaning back. So you can see... And this is one of the fundamental problems of my research is that everyone has said, oh, well, you know, leaning forward is engaged, leaning back, disengaged. Well, that's, sorry, Charlie, but that's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So, so an, another issue is whether or not movement is associated with engagement or not. Now, there was for a long time um, a suggestion uh, that came out of Peter Bull's lab in York, which was that um, if you wanted to see engagement, that would be arousal. And uh, arousal would be associated. Thank you. Arousal would be associated with more movement. That's that that moment in the sports. Goal! Yes. But in fact, 
If you watch people on video screens, it's a little bit, again, more complicated. So on the one hand, when people are really interested in something, you could say that they move a lot, like that goal moment, you know, the real arousal. But often when people are really interested in what's going on, they do this. <laughs> and they don't move at all. It, this, is, this is what we're working on now. So the, this is called action inhibition. That is, people, people inhibit all of their um, non-instrumental movements. So the only movements that people make, if you have a, a video game, so one of the video games we use is something called Zuma, which is a vigilance video game. That is, it, it just, the stuff comes at you and it, there, there aren't breaks, there aren't natural breaks. So you just have to do a lot very quickly. And what people do is they minimize all their movements except for the ones that they use for looking where the ball is. That's it. They, they barely make any other movements. So they make often lots of little tiny movements like this. You see the little tiny movements. But other than that, they, they make almost no movements. Now, we, that's engagement. What about boredom? Now, boredom, boredom can be expressed. I mean, we often think of boredom as a combination of catatonia and lethargy. That is, people will not move if they're bored. But in fact, if you really watch people who are bored, they often mix catatonia with listlessness. That is, the, they'll often make huge movements. They'll, they'll do things... Sorry, can I borrow your chair again? Sorry. <laughs> if people are watching a screen and they're, they're actually kind of bored with what they're watching, they'll make, they'll make shifting movements. It, it, it's almost as if... I mean, we call it restlessness. It's almost as if they're making an abortive escape gesture. That is, I'm going to get out of my chair. I, I'm, I'm out of here. But in fact, they realize, oh, I forgot, I'm watching telly. And then they sit back down again. And so these restless moves are, they're non-trivial. You know, they, they're, they're usually big. So now I'd like you to think about, so I'm, I'm sorry for, I hope we, are, are you, are you all right if I do a bit of mathematics? All right. <laughs> so my work is, is based around time series analysis. So it's all graphs uh, where you just have time on the, the x-axis and the y-axis is things like head position, body position, you know, leg movement, and that sort of thing. Now, let's say that I, I, wanted to, I wanted to know whether people were really engaged. We could have originally said, oh, well, why don't we look at how much movement they've got? Well, if we just measured outright movement, let's say we went from time point to time point and just looked at average movement or something like a standard deviation of their position, I challenge you to tell me the difference between someone who does one lots of sitting still followed by one huge movement versus someone who's always just slightly jigging. Do you see the problem there? You can, if you add up the total movement it could conceivably be the same. You can see the mathematical problem with this. And this leads to chaos. So I'd like to tell you briefly about the Hearst exponent. So Harold Edwin Hearst graduated from Oxford in 1900, and he was a, a British eccentric, but a fabulous mathematician, a hydrologist, ultimately, although he was originally he did physics at Oxford. He was obsessed with the Nile, and uh, was put in, in charge of their, their, the public works within, with, within the Nile in Egypt in the early 20th century. 
and he gathered the most, the most uh, complete set of data for any river known in terms of how much water would flow and how high the water would get for the Nile from year on year. This was incredibly important to the British government because, of course, the British government wanted to build the Aswan Dam. And one of the big questions, dams are fantastically expensive to build. And one of the questions is, how much, how much water do we have to actually hold? What Hearst found was called the Hearst effect, or, or more properly, a lot of people call it the Joseph effect. That is, if, if you looked at the, the flow over time, it wasn't white noise. It wasn't purely random. That is, he found that there were years of plenty, several years, followed by years of less. It wasn't completely random. In fact, lots of natural phenomena are not completely random. Although scientists often like to think that they're random, it turns out that they seem to come in clusters, as if there are cycles that we don't understand that are occurring within them. So just very briefly, the mathematics of what he did. So, so I've been looking at these Hearst exponents at, at how people moved. I'll tell you, I'll explain why we've gone in this crazy diversion with Hearst in a sec. But Hearst had what I would describe. He was looking at the Nile, and there was just loads and loads of numbers. And really, he had noisy data. And of course, human beings are as noisy as they come. Anybody who's, who knows a chemist, you'll know that chemists are, uh, chemists are the, the most frustrating people to deal with because they know what's right. They, they're absolutely positive. If you set up the reaction in a certain way, you get the products you want. You have the right reactants, you get the products. Biologists know that on, on the day, the rat does whatever it likes. right? <laughs> so my data with humans beats all rats. You know, pe- People are... People are very, very, they have very noisy responses to things. And of course, my, the measurements that we're making on head movement is also noisy. What Hearst did, which he used three processes mathematically that were exactly what you would expect for getting rid of a noisy data. So the first thing is he did is he, so you guys are probably familiar with noise, so you, hopefully. And the first thing you do with noise is you integrate, because if you integrate, then your noise starts going away right away. So he, he added up. So when he, he analyzed things, instead of looking from point to point, he added up this point and then on top of that point and then on top of that point. So he integrated. The, the second thing he did is he looked not just at between any two time points next to one another, but he also looked at time points that were further spread apart. Because if you have noisy data, it turns out that the noise will start canceling out one another. So if you look instead of at T1 and time point, you know, at one second and two seconds, if instead you look at one second and ten seconds, you'll find that a lot of the noise between one second and two seconds, it all cancels out, it disappears. And the third thing he did is he looked at ranges. So instead of just, just measuring standard deviations, he looked at the range. And in any event, what I found is, bless his salt, cotton socks, he, he got rid of loads of the noise in my data. And what it allows you to do is recognize the, the structural difference between one big movement in time, followed by very little, versus lots of little tiny movements. That, that's, the, that's the important thing about this chaotic, the, so the Hearst exponent is, well, I'm not going to give you the mathematics of how it's estimated, but it really is helpful for recognizing this difference in how people move. Now, the, when we talk about engagement, why would you look at engagement? Well, obviously, if you do teaching, and particularly one of my collaborators does teaching of Asperger's kids. Now, teaching of Asperger's kids, are, it's incredible what happens with them. So teaching, you, you would think maybe you could recognize what's going on in terms of their 
movements. And she, rather naively, thought that what she would do is she does human-computer interaction. She designs computer interfaces. And what she naively did is she had this very simple game where you could do a touch screen, and she got four-year-old kids, four- and five-year-old Asperger's boys, it's mostly boys who have Asperger's, to do these very simple tasks. And what she thought she would be able to do is she would be able to do eye tracking. She had uh, cameras and stuff above, and she'd be able to eye track and watch what happened. But she was, she was confounded by the, her experimental participants in a big way. Because what she found was they didn't, instead of just maybe engaging and then maybe making a small movement, instead what they would do is they would make the thing... And then when it did it, they'd start jumping around like crazy. And then they would do something that she had never predicted in a million years. They would turn to the experimenter and start to try and share socially what they'd just done. Asperger's kids who do not socialize would get so excited that they needed to talk to a random stranger. I thought it was a good interface myself. When we're talking about Asperger's, one thing that, that's worth thinking about is um, human-robot interaction. So a lot, a, a lot of body language that's, that's focused now is on, it's not just on these defense and uh, crowd control things, but it, a lot of it's on human-robot interaction. So if you, if you watch it, for instance, um, Kirsten, uh, you know, I, think, I think her name is Durkenhauser. I've, I'm, I've, I've forgotten her. I just know her name. It's all gone blank now. But it, she has this uh, amazing robot called Caspar with a K. You can look it up on the web. It's, it's amazing. What this robot does is it's a crap robot. It, it's diabolically bad. Um, there's a man who sits next to it and controls what the robot does, and the robot has no really good spatial expressions. It makes a sound like it's talking, and it has very simplified arm movements. The result of that, when that, that robot deals with these four-year-old Asperger's kids, is unbelievable the kids view that robot as a rock star. So they will not only interact with it, but they will interact with delight with this robot. And when they see the box being unloaded from the car, where they know the robot is in the box, they will start running after it and screaming, like it's the Beatles. (laughs) Now, since we're on the topic of human-robot interaction and body language, I I present to you a, a simple... So one of my colleagues at Bielefeld in, in Germany is doing an interesting uh, experiment on hu- human-robot interaction using body language. And the question he has is very simple, which is he has a robot that serves drinks at a bar. <laughs> and it, the robot will grab the drink and put it on the table. Now, there's a problem the robot has, though, which is how do you know whom to serve? Now, Think about that for a second. There are a lot of people at the bar. Who is actually trying to get served here? Oh, in his most, so he, he recently found uh, what I consider to be a fairly simple-minded thing, which was there were two seeming things that a robot could do using very basic human compu- uh, computer vision to recognize it. The first question was, are you actually at the bar? That is, are you... Hang on a sec. Are you here... Or are you here? That's one issue that the robot seems that it seems like people who are here are more likely to want a drink. Uh, the other one is whether you're facing the bar or side side on to the bar. These three guys, they don't want drinks. Okay? Now that's the other thing. Now, if it were me, I would say that he's missing a trick. My, my colleague, I'll, he's going to come and visit my lab in April and I'll give him a little kicking and explain to him how it really works. Which is, if if you 
if you watch people at a bar, they do two things. It's almost like people playing Zuma, my, my video game. There are two things they'll do. The first thing is they'll watch, so you'll be able to follow their eyes. And they will watch the bartender. That's what they'll watch, better than the ball. The other thing they will do is they will do action inhibition. All those other random movements that people might be doing, if you're trying to get served, you do nothing but try and get served. <laughs> right? So, so that, th if, in any event, uh, that's, that's hopefully his next big uh, move forward. So we were talking about, we were talking about education. And I think one of the things that I've kind of gotten involved with in terms of education and engagement through body language is a, is a daft series of experiments uh, about coughing. Now, coughing, if, if you've ever taught in a lecture hall with 100, 150 kids, you, you'll know, so I, t I teach medical students, you'll know there's, if you actually listen to the tape recordings, so I tape record these things, you'll hear loads of coughs. In fact, if you go to a normal lecture, you won't, you won't remember any of the coughs. You'll, re you'll remember, you'll actually hear the words, but if you listen to a tape recording, you'll realize that the words are unhearable. Loads of words will go blank as somebody coughs, and there will be lots of coughing. So we would find that, so I was looking at my BSMS lectures, and some of those, we'd have a cough every 15 to 30 seconds. There were lots of coughs. This is in a room full of 150 people. Now, the, it turns out that only one guy is published on coughs at all. That, it's uh, James Pennybaker when he was at uh, North University of North Carolina in 1980. I've called the guy since then. He's now in Texas. And he hasn't run anything since then on coughing. But what he suggested at the time, and so I've, I've been doing my own research on it, see if I can reproduce it or anything. But what he suggested at the time was that students coughed more when they liked it less. That is, he suggested that popular lecturers heard fewer coughs, whereas if they were problematic lecturers, there'd be more coughs. Having put that dangerous thought into your mind, I will tell you how I've tortured my, my office mate. So I, I work in an office with a guy named, uh, a, a senior lecturer named Andrew Dilley. And Andrew has won a teaching prize at, around at ours. Um, but having talked to him about this extensively, he's now had the cough thing sort of drummed into his head. So now he, when he's giving his you know, award-winning lectures, he, he now hears all the coughs, and it drives him crazy. <laughs> and the thing is, it's not what Pennebaker's original results aren't true, and Pennebaker himself actually kind of admitted it. He said that it varied depending on what students were studying, interestingly. So most of his results were based on psychology classes, not surprisingly, because he works in a psychology department. But what he found was that his results didn't seem to apply to any professional courses. That is, medicine, engineering, and law, it didn't seem to work out that way. Now, obviously, I've been making loads of really careful measurements with medicine, because that's, those are my students. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. Often, the most popular teachers get the most coughing, because the students are aroused more, and they cough more. And you'll hear the fewest coughs with the most diabolical lecturers, particularly quiet ones, because the, the, the students know that they're going to be examined on it and they're terrified that they're going to both fall asleep and that they won't be able to hear what's being said. So the issue about coughing and engagement is quite, is quite a tricky one. I, 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 hopefully in a few years I'll be able to get, get back to you with some really clear data about what goes on in each of the courses. But certainly don't assume, for entertainment's sake, coughing is bad. But if you're talking about people who are trying to get things done, well, coughing can be good, just, just so you know. Now, I was... 
going to finish. If we, if we have a little time, I, I thought I'd talk about some of the research in my lab, if, if, if we have time. Is that, is that, a, is that all right? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's very tricky. So I'm going to talk about three things now. Uh, I'll talk about speed dating, music, and cross-cultural differences. So Eloise helped us run a speed dating dis- experiment in um, December, sorry, it was December or November of last year, uh, where we were able to find 14 women and 14 men who were willing to, who had never met each other, and were willing to go speed dating while being uh, filmed by camera and wearing headset microphones. Um, <laughs> and we were interested in uh, a couple of different questions on how people speed data. We haven't completed all the analysis, but I can tell you a, a few interesting observations that might, might, you know, that are kind of interesting. The, the first is that when people are in speed dating situations, so I, I can't say about real love and life, but in speed dating, it is not a lock and key scenario. That is, there's there's an idea that for every man there is a there is just this one woman and for every woman there is this one man well in speed dating everybody likes the same guy everybody likes the same girls just so you know it's it's the, now for women it, it is it's not just looks although that makes it can make a big difference and it is disastrous what we saw it's unfair for people who are uh heavy for women who are heavy but with men it it almost certainly wasn't looks. There was definitely a thing about charm. And there were guys who were, who were very charming but not very good looking. The, one of the most popular guys there was obviously really charming but quite average looking. And he did some interesting things as well. Now, the reason you would look at speed dating, so we've, we're talking about a... Here, we're talking about... We talked about how body language reveals things that you don't want to reveal. We also talked about engagement. With speed dating, there's a lot of things that people don't want to reveal. In particular, it's the negotiation process that nobody wants to go first. People often don't talk about how negotiation isn't always proactive, but being reactive is a much more powerful position in a lot of different negotiations. And speed dating, although you may not think of it this way, but from my perspective, it's really clear, speed dating is a negotiation. The negotiation is whether or not you want to continue a conversation elsewhere. That's the negotiation. And what you'll see is that people don't want to give away too much of their interest. In fact, really good speed daters don't give away much of anything about themselves. They don't really talk about their status. People who show off diamonds and drop all their money and talk about their their yacht, that's not really going to happen in speed dating. It's not going to work out very well. What people who are speed dating do, they're often very indirect. They do wacky things. They ask people, if you could be uh, any kind of pizza, what kind of topping would you be? You know, that sort of thing. They, they ask really daft questions. One of the most interesting things I, I saw, so th- remember we were talking about whether people lean in or lean out. This really charming guy, he had a very interesting method, which was almost certainly unconscious. What he would do is he would not reveal his interest in women by leaning forward above the table. What happened was below the table. Now, of course, the person, the person he was talking to couldn't see this, but we had cameras so, of course, we could see this. And he would b- be moving around like this. And if he was really into somebody, he would start making this kind of move. And he'd be <laughs> practically off his chair with his knees, practically talking to women. But he'd be talking above the, above the waterline. It'd all be normal. 
but below the waterline, he, he was drawn inexplicably to the person, almost from the middle of his body. Uh, it was a very uh, peculiar thing. Uh, almost certainly part of the advantages of not revealing too much when you're negotiating about something like love. Um, another one of the projects that we're doing with the Noise Abatement Society and Brighton and Hove Council uh, concerns music. Oh, by the way, it's speed dating. If you want to help us out, we'll be running another... St- I know, it's really difficult. I, Eloise must, must think it's a drag. She'll tell you, don't do it. But um, we are looking for more help running our next speed dating experiment, which will be next February, part of the Bright- Brighton Science Festival. So we'll, we'll, I mean, if you want to sign up for that, give me your email at the end, and we'll, I'd, I'd love some help, because um, we're, we're going to really capture just the best data this time. I know. So moving to music, with Brighton and Hove Council, we've been quite interested in safety and whether you can use music and soundscapes to change whether things are dangerous and change whether people, um, how people respond to a place. Now, obviously, some of this has been done since the 1920s, looking at things uh, associated with uh, Muzak. And I'm not interested in Muzak, and I hate Muzak. But we ran the following experiment where we were looking at people in a tunnel. So the, the council gave me a pedestrian tunnel um, it's the most in the one of the most busy clubbing streets in Brighton. So it turns out, um, if you've ever been to Brighton, there's an insane street called West Street, which is a very short area where all the clubs are. And anyone from Birmingham down who's having a hen night is there on a Saturday. <laughs> they're they're all there with their pink cowboy hats. It's it's complete mayhem on this one street. Uh, incredible clubbing. Now, of course. That street is one one street away from the beach. So all you have to do is cross the King's Road and you're at the beach. But there is a a rather unfortunate, tragic problem, which is you have to cross this road. And the King's Road is fantastically busy with traffic. And the police will happily inform you that this is a road where they have a lot of road traffic fatalities and other disasters that occur on this on this, this one stretch of street as people who are very drunk try and get through this busy traffic to the beach late at night. There is, um, there is, however, this pedestrianized tunnel which goes directly from Oceana, the clubbing center, straight under, under the road to the beach. You can get there completely safely. Now, the problem was that London gangs started using this tunnel as a drug, a drug territory. And so territoriality, they, it became unusable by anyone. And ultimately, the council had to shut it down, shut the entire tunnel down during evening times because they couldn't, tell, they couldn't control what was happening in there. So the question was whether or not we could improve safety in the tunnel and improve people's experience by using music. So we did the following. Uh, to establish our own territory, we played a range of different kinds of music. So we played some classical pieces, some... Uh, Classical, we played some trad jazz, and we also played some very new dance music. So we played all these different pieces of music to see whether or not we could get safety by establishing our own territory. So remember, I am Mr. Music and Territory. So, so this, this was hopefully some way of establishing. We, unlike, the, so you may have heard of stories of the London Underground having music as well, yeah, to, to uh, reduce vandalism and to reduce loitering. Yes, you know about that? So there are loads of municipalities who have used music to reduce loitering and vandalism. Uh, Usually they use classical music, or better still, Barry Manilow. Um, 
the idea is that the music is aversive to young people and because who wants to conduct a drug deal to Barry Manilow? But, but I was given explicit instructions by the council that, that I mustn't deliberately use aversive music, that I had to use a selection of very positive pieces of music. So we had some really nice, we had some uh, really nice Haydn, we had some, uh, we had some very hopping music, you know, for the, uh, modern, and we had really, uh, really traditional, do you guys know Sing, Sing, Sing? Many pride, yeah. It's absolutely fantastic, the original. And uh, what we found, we found loads of different things. One of the issues was we wanted to see whether or not people would entrain with the music. So we're looking at, so we haven't gotten this data yet, but we're looking at whether or not people bounce up and down at the same rhythm as the music. So we got all that, we took all these pieces of music and we cheated. So we changed the rates of all the music just by using audio techniques to get everything to be about 106 BPM beats per minute and uh, it does look as though people are more likely this is very early days yet people are more likely to go to bounce up and down at the same rate as the music that is not everyone entrains to the music unconsciously but quite a number of people will do and you can see it when they how they walk the precise steps oh sorry they step in in time that is footfalls occur at exactly the same moment as the music and yeah, so that, that has been interesting. The other thing we found with this music experiment is we looked at whether or not different kinds of music affected whether people would be more charitable. So we put two Martlets um, bucketers at the end of the tunnel uh, during the daytime, and we looked at how different, whether what people were listening to in the 20 seconds before they passed these peop- bucketers and whether or not they gave more or less. And I can safely say that we had about... 300 people, so we didn't do the experiment for very long, so we couldn't get statistically significant results because we only had a 7% giving rate overall. But we did see some pretty beguiling data which showed that if you were listening to Haydn, you were literally twice as likely to give. 10%, you had a 10% giving rate compared to silence, which was 5%. The other music was around about 7%. So we, do, we don't really know why that works. We have to obviously repeat it to make sure that it works. But there, that's where we ended up. The last thing I wanted to leave you with is the idea that maybe body language. So we've talked about we've talked about human robot interaction, we've talked about crowd control, we've talked we haven't really talked about human factors, but obviously when people are looking at truck drivers, the issue is can you judge when truck drivers are dangerous? And I don't need to tell you what body language you look for. And that's something that's quite important in nighttime driving in Australian mines and that sort of thing. But the what I wanted to give you was the idea that it's not just that your body gives away. It's not just that your body is projecting your internal state, but your body controls your internal state to some extent. So I'll tell you about one little weird experiment that you can run at home if you have time. I mean, I have, I've done it. Why not? Um, so you can tr- look at how children answer questions that are just at, the ra- just at the range of their ability to understand something. So if you look at five-year-old kids... And you do something called a Piagetian conservation test. Are there any sociologists here? I may have to explain that Piagetian. So Piaget looked at child development. And one of the things that, that you learn about in child development is that as an adult, we all know that mass is conserved. But when you were four, you didn't know that. Sometime around that, so when I, that means that 
if you start with a certain amount of fluid or mass or anything, it, it won't get bigger or smaller over time out of nowhere. That, you know that. It would be magic otherwise. But at f- the age of four, you don't know that. So if you pour a set amount of liquid from a tall, thin thing to a short, stubby thing, you would all know that it's the same amount of liquid. But a four-year-old wouldn't. So you can do a little test like that and ask children which is more, and you can show them before or after. Short, stubby versus tall, thin. Same amount of fluid. At about the age of five, some kids will know the answer and some kids won't. They're kind of dodgy. They're dicey on it because they've not fully got their head around the issue. What's interesting is if you take kids and randomize them so that some of them can make body language and others keep their hands in a little bit of fabric so they, it's a little, it's a little war- hand warmer so that they can't make body language movements, what you'll find is the ones who have free movement will have more definitive statements, they'll be more concrete, they'll be faster to answer, and they'll be much more likely to be wrong. Whereas the kids who are not moving will take longer, they'll be more hesitant, they'll speak about their rationale in abstract terms, and they're more likely to be right. Which reminds me of my own tiny childhood being held up like this and standing all the time like this. And I'll leave you with that one thought. I'll take questions if you like. Thank you very much. So the, the question is, when using Skype, should you be obviously more close to the screen or further away? Yeah, and, and, and should more of the scene be available? So the, I have a couple of responses just as a thought. The first thing is that Skype has changed how you make relationships in science completely. So it used to be that the only way of getting a really good collaboration going was to show up or see someone at a meeting. I now can call people out of the blue, and instead of email, which would be ignored, if you have a Skype, you are much more likely to get a, a collaboration off the ground. It's just extraordinary how it changes the nature of this. I d- it's just from seeing people. You could do it with a phone, but it wouldn't work. But when you see people, it does. Now, what kind of movements do you need to make? Well, I would recommend against this. You don't want to necessarily be completely in the camera. I, I, tend to, I would tend to have a, a more broad view of the camera. Of course, you're, so a lot of webcams actually have a slightly fisheye lens so they can capture more of the scene. And I would tend to go that way rather than, rather than having something that's where your face could actually get knocked off the screen. Does that make sense? There are those two kinds of cameras. And generally speaking, having more of a scene gives more of a feel. There's something also about seeing somebody else's office that makes you feel like you're part of the whole process. But you, yeah, you just are. Um, there was a paper years ago that, that said that 80% of communication is body language, which we authors kind of tried to say that's not what they meant. 
what, what percent, you might be biased as well, but what percentage do you reckon is body language and compared to words? Right, so the question is um, about, um, in the early 1970s, Albert Morabian published a series of papers which suggested that body language, so the actual physical movement, if you were judging people as to whether or not to like them, physical movement, if I remember correctly, was nominally, was it 55 or 65 percent that, uh, sorry, it was 68 percent, I think. There was, no, it was 58 percent. 35 percent was auditory sound and 7 percent was actual content. I'll give you an example of what I think of that. Now, I should point out, by the way, that the newspapers caught hold of that. Morabian never supported that point of view. It was just one way of looking at it. Now, you've got to remember how Morabian did this in the 1960s. So what he did is he handed people, so they didn't have the same technology we had, he would hand people a photograph of a person, and the person could either be positive, neutral, or negative. And he would at the same time also have a tape recording of a single word. And the tape recording would either have a verse tone that was positive, neutral, or negative. And at the same time, he would have a word, and the tape recording would have a single word, which would either be a positive word, like love, a neutral word, like so, or a negative word, like scram. And he would mix these up, so there would be a complete three-dimensional matrix. So you could have scram with a positive voice with someone with a very positive expression. And doing uh, a statistical analysis, they came up with numbers along the lines of what you're saying. And the next time you meet someone who is only a photograph and says one word to you with a voice tone that is unpredictable, you can definitely assume that, that those numbers were correct. But if the person said more than one word to you and they weren't just a photograph, you might have a slightly different response. And I'll give you uh, an example uh, with Sam. So I'll, I'll show you. Uh, if you'd like to stand up. So, you, you, so pretend that Sam and I are... Um, at a wedding of uh, Sam's daughter, okay? And check out my body language. Make sure that it's as positive as possible. So here's some really positive body language, as best I can do, okay? Sam, you must be so proud of your daughter. She's married so far above her station. <laughs> so was that positive? Was that positive? Somehow I, don't, somehow I don't think that would be taken as very positive. Thank you very much, Sam. So... It is true that content does matter, I'm sorry to say. It's not just body language. But it is true that bad body language can destroy good content. There's no question that that is feasible. I mean, one of the problems with any kind of success or positivity is there, are, there may be a, a hundred positive ways of doing things, but there are a million ways of screwing that up. So there are just so many different ways of... If you have eight or nine prerequisites, any one of them that fails could be a disaster. Sorry, there, there's a, a question over there. Yeah. Have you done any study into the evolution behind body language? So why did people fold them up? So we might understand when it happened, but why do we actually do that or not have that real eye-to-eye contact in certain situations? Okay, so the question is, there, there's two questions really involved in there. The first is, have I done any research on the evolution of body language, or is there much known about the evolution of body language generally, not just for me? 
And the question is, do we know why people make certain gestures? And theoretically, the idea is that you could understand the body language, the meaning of the body language, the why, based on the evolution. So the first thing is, all, all studies, I'm sad to say, I mean, Robin Dunbar is here, and Robin would be the, your man for that. So he looks at the evolutionary basis of all sorts of social rituals, like grooming and that sort of thing. But broadly speaking, I would say, I mean, Robin's not here, is he? <laughs> I, I would say, anything you say about evolution is just kind of making stuff up, isn't it? Right? Because you weren't there. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. And the problem with the evolutionary record of body language is you don't have trilobites in this position. <laughs> the well, things. Yeah, so. Okay, so the, the question is so we can look at our closest relatives and see how they responded and how we responded. And that's, that's exactly what is done. So Robin works on, non-human, he works on non-human primates. And so he's looking at the relationships between our gestures and their gestures. And I, was just, I just worked on something for uh, National Geographic called, can I remember what it's called now? Uh, Monkey Man, where they did, they did loads of uh, comparisons between uh, humans, human behavior and uh, non-human primate behavior. And there are overlaps, but there are also lots of really obvious differences. We're much more likely to have rituals associated with it. Now, that's not to say, so there are lots of behaviors that non-human primates have that we also share. So they have, they have certain kinds of rituals, they have deceit, uh, they have uh, pair grinding, they have groups. But a lot of the, the deeper rituals that we have are completely different. So. There is some overlap, but there's also some differences. So I'll give you a simple example, which is laughter. Now, laughter, if, so there's a, there's a guy named Robert Provine who's published a lot on um, what laughter is and why we have it. And one of the things he found is that the vast majority of laughter is non-humorous laughter. That is, laughter is about 90% of all laughter. If you just tape record conversations and try and figure out what happened before the conversation, 90% of it is some kind of social event. My favorite one, he lists all the sorts of things that people say before laughter occurs. And my favorite statement that he had in his amazing list was, here comes Andre. Ha, 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 ha. What was Andre up to, man? <laughs> so th- if you look, a lot, of, a lot of laughter. So we're talking about differences between humans and non-human primates. So humans have this humor basis which, and there's lots of arguments, humor and laughter are two different objects. They're often associated with one another, particularly laughter is often associated with humor. And humor can be associated with laughter, but not always. I mean, it, it goes both ways. But the upshot is, obviously, to the best of our understanding, non-human primates don't have humor. But they do have laughter, but it's called pant laughter, so it's very different from us. So all of our laughter is based around interrupted exhalations, whereas their laughter is non-vocalized, so it's non-voiced. So they'll, and it's also in inspire, inspiration and expiration. So it'll be very rapid I- between them, so like, <laughs> and very quickly. And that, with chimpanzees, this laughter is associated with play situations almost exclusively. And, and just like in humans, you'll see much more laughter 
in chimpanzees when they're young than when they're older. So Provine has estimated that it, the number of times that a child uh, laughs per day is about 10 times as much as an adult. The children are laughing all the time. So in that sense, we share some things with um, non-human primates, but there are a lot of other things that we definitely don't share. And that goes all the way down to the physiology as well as to the, to the behavioral context. And take my word for it, culture completely changes things. For, I'll give you another example, which is my favorite, which is music. Um, there are only two non-human primates that have music at all. Uh, there are gibbons who make what are nominally musical calls, and then idris, which uh, are in Madagascar, if I remember correctly, and they have very limited, very short pieces of music. The birds are much more musical than most primates. And of course, we are fabulously musical. We're obsessed with music. We're pe human beings are making music all the time. They l not every single one, but they love music, and music is a part of every single culture that's been found, although you might not recognize that music when you hear it. It's obvious to sociologists and anthropologists that this is music. So for instance, there are tribes in the Amazon which, who make sounds that almost sound like people whispering. But if you listen, it's, it's tonal, and it's repeated, and it has kind of a rhythm to it. It is music, almost certainly, but it's not music as you and I would expect. But there's something special about humans and music, and that isn't shared with non-human primates. Does that, I'm sorry, that's a really completely naff answer. But, <laughs> but broadly speaking, there are, there are relationships and there are not relationships. And for us, we can figure out some purposes for some things, but not for others. I mean, I do it myself. I make these just-so stories up. So a chess display is a way of showing confidence. That's because you're, you're opening yourself up to attack, supposedly. But I mean, I just made that up. You know. other, other body language experts would say the same thing now. But we weren't there. Yeah, Petros. So to, to which extent does physiology uh, dictates psychology? Or is it the other way around? And I have another question. Uh, is that probably nonverbal communication was existed before verbal. So the mechanism might have been evolved very, to a very complex uh, state. So maybe um, something that could have been interpreted in one, when you try to quantify and interpret based on quantifiable uh, science, to which extent can you actually interpret it in that way, or does it come down to empathy? Like, uh, is that the only way that you can really... Okay, there, there seem to be two or three questions in there. Um, if I can keep track of one of them, that one of the first one is whether physiology dictates psychology or whether psychology can actually dictate physiology. And it, I mean, the, the, second, the second question you asked, uh, it almost blows my mind, the idea that psychology dictates physiology. There's a simple ex example of that, which is arousal. So the human body, people don't just get on and do stuff. It turns out that most people and animals spend a lot of time just getting ready. They, there's always like a step between deciding to do something and actually doing it. And that, that's, that, that step is arousal, and that's getting ready. But the question as to whether or not physiology dictates psychology happens a lot. If you watch Gordon Brown, for instance, when, he, when Gordon Brown gets really excited about something, you'll see, watch him 
Watch old pictures of Gordon Brown. He'll do something like this. He'll get up on his toes when he's excited about something. And you can actually tell what his power words are, what's really important to Gordon Brown, based on when he steps forward and just gets on his toes. So that, and that's, an, that's a form of arousal and excitement. It's like, remember I told you about aborted escape gestures. This is abortive approach gestures, you know? I'm excited. We're talking about, you know, labor goals, old labor. It's all good. So the second question you asked about is, whether language, whether language was preceded by verbal hand, some kind of nonverbal signals or hand signals. And Stephen Mythen has written extensively about this called The Singing Neanderthal. There's, there's a lot of questions as to whether song came first or language came first or if it was just hand signals. And you'll see that lots of hand signals are integrated within language. So we talk about gesture as though it's some, some different thing. But in fact, it's all part of the same system. As, as I showed you with, I hate broccoli. <laughs> you, can, you can see that, they, that it's all part of one system in terms of how people fit these hand gestures together and body gestures together. So it's probable that we did have some kind of hand gesture before. Now, there's a huge argument as to whether or not we had music before language or language before music which is a really interesting question. There are good reasons to think that we could have had music before language because we have prosody. We all take prosody for granted. That is the, the tone of voice that we use to express things. But these jumps and how we use the tone of voice are really fundamental in how we express one another, and how we express things to one another. And the single most important thing for... So one of the things that you find in every culture is something called mother ease, where you have how parents, or particularly mothers, talk to babies. And it's always quite a musical, very expressive kind of language. And it's very different from how we would talk to an adult. So the women, these same mothers, will switch between two different languages, one for baby and one for adults. And this mother ease is quite musical. So the thing that the baby has to know, the most important thing for a baby, is, is it safe? And the best way to know it's safe, or are they safe, is through sound recognition. The big problem with infants in particular is that human infants do not get carried around, um, or at least in evolutionary terms. The idea was that they did not have slings for a long time. So human babies had to be put down in a way that other marsupials and other kind of animals which grab onto their parents' fur and hold on can't do. If you imagine, babies are always getting put down places. And the real question is, is it still safe? And the baby has to recognize whether it's safe based on whose voice they can hear. Now, a mother singing is a recognizable voice, so that means it's still good. Whereas somebody else's voice, say a deep male voice, which is from a different tribe, that can be recognized even without language. And that may be a threat. Okay, I've forgotten the third question. Okay, so the, the final question is, am I wasting my time with my research? Which is, am I quantifying rubbish and should I, is it, is it just, is the only thing that's really important how you feel, is everything individualized 
and can you not make generalizations the way you do? And the short answer is that's a philosophical question. Plainly, I've gone down this road, so I believe it's possible, but there will always be people who will say, no, it's not possible. There are exceptions to everything, and I have to admit, hand on heart, there will always be exceptions. I will never hit 100%, so you're absolutely right. But I'm kind of hoping to get, get to 60%. That'll, that'll do for me, okay? So the question is, what about blind people? Do we learn body language, or is it innate? And is it, there's probably a sociologist who will know whether or not I'm pronouncing this right. It's Ebel Eisenstadt, is that right? Do you guys remember? He did experiments on deaf and blind kids uh, up until, you know, the age of four four to six months, and they smile. They don't learn smiles from us. It's not like when they're happy, they, they frown. And, you know, it's not a random... Our facial expressions are not randomly chosen. They, we are set up... Smiling is good. That, that is the bottom line. So there are some basic universal codes of body language, at least some people would call it universal. There are some arguments that Ekman... Paul Ekman was the facial expression expert from the... is the facial expression from the U.S. who developed the facial action coding system who claimed to have found that there are six or seven, depending on how you count it, universal expressions in all cultures, although people have started arguing with whether or not Ekman is right and that there may be cultural differences. But certainly, outside of facial expressions, there are a lot of other exceptions. There are a lot of other expressions like shrugging, which are not culturally the same. I mean, you don't see every Englishman doing those little French things. <laughs> that, you know, plainly, lots of these things are culturally learned or learned for your parents. So th- it's a mixture of both, but a lot of body language will be personal. So for instance, people are never do this when they're happy. They just don't. It's that means pain in the neck and it just it is a people do it when they're experiencing a pain in the neck. It it's not a random gesture that people do. And obviously that's a what we call a non-instrumental gesture. People do that it for no good reason. It doesn't help them at all. They just rub the back of their neck when they're frustrated. So there are some that seem to be, they seem to be unlearned. They, they just seem to be innate. But there are others that plainly are cultural. You know, you could, I suppose we, you're asking, is there a list? The sad truth is, no, I don't think anyone sat down and written the list. You mentioned a number of uh, experiments that are more complicated. Others, you seem to talk about behaviors that we really know about. So one question, or rather part one of the question is, which parts of body language have we really decoded and are we confident that we understand? Which ones are we not? The other part of the question is, you mentioned these coaches or politicians like Obama and so on. So probably they're operating on the stuff that we actually know more about, I'm guessing, or more confident about, not the gray areas that are still being researched by you. So the final bit is, is there a kind of popular uh, book you can read about this stuff, <laughs> or do you need to uh, you know, go down the route of reading all your articles or, I don't know, paying thousands of dollars to someone? So there are three questions I think I counted there. Yeah. Uh, the, f- the, f- I think I can only remember the second one actually. They, so where we were is first of all, how can you? So some some of the questions seem to be 
what do we know and what don't we know? What do we know and what don't we know for sure? So the, the thing that people are most confident about almost certainly are facial expressions. So a lot of the arm gestures and movements, um, those seem to have high, high cultural variability. And that's part of the reason why I'm trying to, I mean, my next series of experiments is almost certainly, if I can get the money off of the lever hume, is to do cross-cultural measurements to see, answer exactly the question that you're asking. So no one's really done that successfully from a hand perspective. So I'll give you a reason why people don't really know that much about hand gestures. So people know a lot about facial gestures. They spend a lot of time, based on Ekman's work, trying to decode facial gestures. But with hand gestures, to quantify them, how how many of you are familiar with uh, motion capture? You know about motion capture. It's where you have uh, usually markers where on the body. It's what they use for making video games where they, you have little markers on the body and cameras all over the room to figure out exactly where your hand is in space. So you can get X, Y, Z coordinates of every part of your body. You know, when the guys are they're doing the sword stuff inside of a lab. And then you see in the video game people moving in human realistic terms. But think about what the way they do this with arms. Okay, I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll show you a problem that you have with arms. Okay. The way that you you do this with uh, it's very easy to capture shoulders, and I have I'm always getting markers. So you have little little balls. I use nine millimeter uh, reflective balls that show infrared light, and you can put that easily on the shoulder. But imagine trying to put that on the wrist to try and figure out where, where your wrist is in space. The problem you've got is the supination pronation problem. That is, your wrist can do this kind of movement. So can you, first of all, the, the, the marker can disappear off camera. But also, what they normally do is they have little oil derricks, little tiny oil derrick-like things that hold the ball about here and there. Now imagine I've got, I'm trying to make movements, measurements of people's hand movements while they're watching TV. So they do this. They knock all the markers off instantly. And because they're pronating and supinating all the time, if they do this, they do that, all sorts of things. There are loads of really good reasons why people have not been able to marker up arms very well. Now it turns out that the problem is if you try and use just pure light cameras to figure out where the arms are in space, it's rubbish. Even the, the guys at USC who've got the best decoding algorithms, the arms just switch sides. It's just so wrong what they get. So it's not really possible. So we know very little about arms. What's the second question? So if we know very little about arms, they these coaches So the second question is, if we know very little about arms, how do the coaches teach? And that is based on a on a fundamental misunderstanding that you have about knowledge, which is that knowledge is not made by scientists who then disseminate this knowledge to the greater world who are made better for it. Knowledge is made by people wandering around doing their thing who figure out just spontaneously what works and what doesn't. And then scientists with brooms clean up the trail afterwards trying to prove that what everyone else knows is true actually is true. So in fact, we, we scientists are the last people to know what's going on. And it's experts who are natural about it, who get this knowledge out and disseminate it to people. 
and then I'm just trying to get the numbers to prove what's going on there. Occasionally, a scientist will prove that a, a practitioner is wrong, but that's very occasional. The third question is, where do you learn about this stuff? There are loads of really good books on it. I'm going to write one probably in the next year, and it'll be really good. But if you, <laughs> if you don't have time to wait, um, the books that everyone else reads are by Alan Pease, so P-E-A-S-E. Alan Pease writes uh, a load of books about body language, which are generally quite good. If you go to his older books, they're better than the definitive book on body language, so that's quite a thick, slow book. If you want to know more, go to his earlier books, which have have less content but are easier to read. But if you're if you're open-minded and are slightly catty, then the best books to read unequivocally are by Judy James, who is a British ex-model who is not an academic at all, but is hysterically funny and is a very, very observant woman. J U D I James, J A M E S. Judy James's stuff is very good, as well as Alan Pease's stuff. Do not buy the uh, body language for them, that's garbage. <laughs> oh, Desmond Morris. Okay, so Desmond Morris wrote a whole series of amazing books about body language between 1960 and about 1980, and all of those are great entertainment. I highly recommend them. They're fabulous. There are their video lectures. There probably are, but I don't know. I can't recommend them. Are you on YouTube? Am I on YouTube? If not, why not? The question is, am I on YouTube? And the answer is, I can explain how to measure arterial blood gases on YouTube. If you look me up on YouTube, you see loads of student videos explaining physiology. Um, so I do explain how the action potential works, but it's the last thing you'd ever want to hear. I mean, if you're a medical student, it's jolly useful. Right, shall we call out a day then, guys? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.